Hello, John. Yes, how did the sound check go? Oh, it sounded beautiful. You sound very handsome. Well, let's not jump to conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the kind thought, but uh, I have to certainly uh, question the veracity of the information <laughs> given the fact that we're uh, are not on a television phone. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> Though we'd like to see, we'd like to take a peek into your game room. I, I bet it's really nice. <laughs> well, uh, like most game designers, I don't play that much. Ah, yeah. That's a problem. I don't know, maybe it's uh, some sort of unexpected, uh, you know, curse, you know. Yeah. James Dunnigan was always proud of the fact that he never played a game. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we we uh, we were looking at your page on Wikipedia. Did you know you had an entry on Wikipedia? I'm sure someone put one in. Yeah, and among many other things, it mentions that you were... Uh, I'll just read this. Hill was named to the Wargaming Hall of Fame, receiving the Charles S. Roberts Awards at the Origins Gaming Convention in Chester, Pennsylvania, on June 23, 1979. Hill developed what arguably is the most popular rule set ever developed for regimental-level American Civil War miniature gaming, the Johnny Reb series. Oh, he, well, that's true, that's true enough. Uh, people often say, what is the... Uh, they'll ask me what I think is the most uh, popular Civil War miniature rules, and I say, well, it's not Johnny Reb. And they'll look at me sort of weird, and I would say, it's a basically the most common regimental set of Civil War rules is a variant of Johnny Reb. Every, the, the system is very, very robust, as is squad leader, that you can just pile a lot of stuff on it, as advanced squad leader proved, and the system holds up quite well. Yeah. Yes, and in Johnny Reb, you'll, people have been tweaking with it and uh, adding stuff on it and taking chrome on, taking chrome off, and playing with it forever, and uh, yeah, it, it still holds up well. Uh, as a matter of fact, the two systems, if you look into them, uh, Johnny Reb and Squad Leader are very similar. Uh, in some respects, Johnny Reb was the uh, further development of the Squad Leader chronology, except it's now done on a more simultaneous uh, mechanism, which is more traditional with uh, bo uh, miniature games as opposed to the phase term sequence in board games. Mm -hmm. But if you break down a, the Johnny Reb turn sequence, you'll say, hey, this is basically squad leader, but it's being done simultaneously. Oh, I see. And uh, you can certainly do it. You could go back from one to the other, and you could, uh, there is a, and that's because they're from the same roots, uh, and that is uh, a depiction of a chronology of combat, which hasn't changed since Cain and Abel, uh, in that, uh, you know, you go back to pretty much all battles are pretty much the same and just different scales, different weaponry, and that one side will have a piece of land. One side's going to be the defender. He's he's very happy with what he has. He's dug in, does whatever he wants to do to fortify his vision. And the other guy is determined to take it away, either by driving him off or killing him and then taking it away. So you have a phase where, a, a, you know, the uh, attacker... Uh, do a prep fire, whether it's, uh, you know, a, 20, uh, a whole 24-7 bombardment like the Psalm, a hail of uh, arrows back in the Persian era, or, you know, just some heavy suppressive fire from MG-42s. It's basically a prep fire. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Civil War, the uh, one-hour barrage by the Confederates before Pickett's charge, it's a prep fire. Right. Right. And then, okay, they says, okay, our prep fire has uh, 
uh, soften them up a bit, uh, hopefully, uh, that we can now advance it. So then there is the advance, and then the defenders that are not uh, dead, dazed, or were otherwise uh, out of it, they will put on a defensive fire, whether it's with arrows, with uh, rovings, with uh, javelins, or and various weapons, or whatever you have. It's David with a sling or long-range standoff defensive weapons. Well, then the, that either stops the defender or it doesn't, or makes him go to ground and make him crawl forward slowly. And then finally, the attackers that do survive the uh, defensive fire will attempt to close with and destroy the enemy, whether it's a Roman with a gladius or a, a German with a schmeiser. Basically, the chronology comes out the same. Mm-hmm. And did you discover uh, this uh, on your own, or was oh, this... Oh, yeah, yeah, pretty much, but it's not like, duh. Right. It's sort of obvious. <laughs> you start reading uh, military history, and uh, it's almost the same thing. Every, every There's always a prep fire phase, whether you're throwing rocks at each other with slingers in the day, days of the Philistines, or heavy artillery in today's modern world. Mm-hmm. Well, what, The whole um, chronology is the same. Yeah, I'd like to ask you then what, what your gaming background was. I mean, we joked that you had don't have a lot of time to play games as you're designing. Uh, were there games that you liked best when you were a youngster? Well, when I I started, I started out with the I was at Dawn of Creation and started out with Tactics Two, and played that to death. And then we waited it and with bated breath for every new game that Avalon Hill would come out once a year. And that then there was uh, Blitzkrieg, which I liked, you know, because well, it was something different, better than Tactics Two. It had hexagons. Wow, well, how's that for novelty? Oh, right. And then we went to uh, Battle of the Bulge, which I thought was very good. And uh, and but I always wanted a much more tactical game. And, and I, because that's I, I was we fascinated with small unit actions, and both small and large unit actions still saw the similarity of the chronology. And also, I just was really excited when SPI came out and said came out with some of their tactical games. The first one, I think, was uh, Dunnigan's Tactical Game Number 10. I have no idea what 1 through 9 looked like. Uh, but, yeah, that was you cut out your own counters, pasted them together. And, yeah, it was, okay, it was an attempt, but it was still had a lot of anomalies in it. Mm-hmm. Then, then we came out with Panzer Blitz. And that still didn't feel right, you know, beyond the pile with Panzer Bush. They used to quirk in the rules that if you, you couldn't do interruptive fire as a person ran from one cover to another. Was oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Panzer Bush. And I thought, it give me a break, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then also if you uh, fired at someone, I think, okay, each unit represents five tanks. And I said, okay, and you could kill all five or you could disrupt them. Well, one of the most likely thing is you maybe kill if you open fire on the platoon with your appropriate your platoons or whatever you might knock one out, uh, you know, damage another one, but you wouldn't disrupt them. I mean, it's not like these five tanks are now scrambling around bewildered. Right. Uh, you either you know it was sort of like you either did no damage, disrupted the tanks, or you killed them all. There was nothing in between. So, was, so that, did you? So that, uh, it, that gave me the impression that okay, something's yeah. That's then they put in the uh, problem with the, the Panzer Bush effect and things like this. 
Uh, so more and more, it was a question of scale. Okay, if you really want to show attrition on weapons and you don't want to have a, 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 a tally sheet or something to keep track, you might you should perhaps go down to a lower scale squad and put a single vehicle. And if you look at most of the stuff I was studying was not the mass armor battles, of course, but I was looking at a lot of the uh, fighting in Normandy and the fighting in uh, Stalingrad and things like this where it was small groups of men with armor support. Occasionally the tanks would fight it off, but it would be made platoon against each other, you know, or section two, two to four. Uh, but it was mostly the stress of the, uh, was combined arms fighting. The actual big quasi-stand-up and tank duels, yeah, they happen out in the Ukraine and certainly the desert, but I found uh, the little combined arm actions more interesting. So look, followed a lot of other things, and so that was the root of squad leader. It was two things. One, I was not getting, there was no game showing the type of level up that I was interested in at the time, and there was nothing that seemed to be an accurate simulation of, of the chronology of the tactical combat. So the scale of squad leader really came about from the need to to meet those criteria yeah, that you had. The criteria, that yeah. so it didn't feel weird mm-hmm. that if I fired a group of five tanks with an appropriate five tanks, there would be a, you'd get something better than nothing disrupted or all five are dead. Yeah. And I, and I, since I played Squad Leader before I played some other World War II um, miniatures games, I played Battleground miniature game, mm-hmm. Skirmish, and I know that one, they can run up on you and there's like no defensive fire and it drives me insane. Because, oh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, know. like, mostly that's sort of like what you had in Panzer Blitz, where everything is a strict phase, where you can't do anything. Uh, you know, I mean, when it just says, okay, we have a 1634s, they're going to run right up to the 88, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, or, well, and in, in this game system, you, you have a, where if you later opt fire out, to, like, a certain area, and you can't turn to your left and fire as someone runs up at you down the street. You know, which again, I'm like, it doesn't quite, doesn't work for me after playing your system. So, well, yeah, and you could certainly make a case that okay, if you suddenly uh, change your arc of attention or something like that, your you know, quick reaction fire, yeah, your fire could be degraded. You could easily work that in the squad leader treated as moving fire half factor. Because for all practical purposes, you uh, you know you make, you make you can make a case that uh, your attention is moving. If you're at a cruiser machine gun and it's too far over the flank, you have to pick it up and slap it down on, on the flank. Yeah, which would be harder to do than with a rifle or pistols. And yeah, so, but the thing is, that's the nice thing about squad. A mechanism is there. If you could say, if you had defined an uh, arc of attention. Arco, where your primary fire to suddenly change target, you could say, well, you you know, a lot of things are changing. Attention's changing. You, know, you don't know the range. It's a snapshot, so to speak. Depending on the weapon, you can easily treat it as uh, moving fire. Right. And if one unit is a squad, the whole squad may be actually doing subtle little movements, but if nothing else going from uh, from the, uh, the north side of the foxhole to the west side of the foxhole or something. But if you want, if you adjudicate that that would degrade their performance, you have a mechanism. Treat it as moving fire. Uh, does the same kind of thing in Johnny Reb. You have, if somebody says, "Well, I, I don't think this is right," this is okay. Treat it as this, that, or the other thing. And you know, so you have a mechanism to address 
situations that a person may not be feel comfortable with or they may feel that they're an anomaly. You don't have to gut the whole system and redo it. Yeah. Right. Were you working for Avalon Hill when these thoughts just were a, formulating in a, your head? No, I was just a, a freelance designer. Oh. Uh, I was actually, uh, I had already done my, had my own game company, the Conflict Game Company, where I was doing quirky little things. I, when I first published War Game, it was actually not a War Game, it was a game on organized crime called The Brotherhood, <laughs> uh, which was more of a family game, more like a 3M game or something. But it, it, it had an edge to it, but it also had the fact that you uh, you were the godfather who treated everything like a business. It wasn't just go out and kill the other guys. It was, oh, hitmen are expensive, and you may make a bet. It may be better just to say, if you can't make a profit in a certain area of the town, but you can in another area, and they just move out of it and move your operation. So that was, that was sort of quirky. And that, was, that was the first one. It was pretty quaint. Uh, the second one almost was a tongue-in-cheek game, you know, and it still is popular with its got its little cult, and that was Verdun, which incidentally was republished, I think, last year or the year before. Oh. Uh, it was published by Cool Front Games. Uh, you know, you sort of wonder, is this a real serious war game when the subtitle of the game, Verdun, was the game of attrition? Right. And... No matter what you do, it's unfortunate so much. Uh, you can have occasionally great successes, but pretty much at the end of the game, everybody's dead. <laughs> you know, you may have uh, taken the ground or not, but basically everybody has chewed through all the reserves and until they're willing to say, they're sort of fascinated by the... The German actually calculated that during the Battle of Verdun, uh, the casualties were so predictable... German efficiency at its best, that they realized that every week they would have to totally draft all the young men in, in, a, in a single German town, and then the next week they'd have to go to another town. But that basically, that was just a, it was the concept of uh, soldiers treated as a consumable. Mm. You know, they're just a form of ammunition. And, you know, Were you happy with the way that turned out? Yeah, it, it accurately simulated it, mm -hmm. uh, but there was enough. There was enough air, uh, uh, wiggle room for tactics. What kind of artillery barrage and that kind of stuff? That yeah, at least you could get something for the fact that you were burning, you know, battalions like popcorn. Yeah. Uh, it, it the weird thing was you began to think you, the Germans had a role for reinforcements. Falkenheim was very stingy. He actually did not want to get a victory, an outright victory, which he probably could have in the beginning, capture uh, Verdun. He wanted to always be threatening right on the edge of it so the French would continue to pour troops in to defend. The whole point is he deliberately wanted a battle of non-decision because he felt that Germany could withstand a prolonged attrition better than France could. Right. Oh, okay. It's sort of a, you know, God help us if our military leaders ever fall into that mentality. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how many total games do you think you've designed in your lifetime? Maybe published, uh, I don't know, probably 20-ish. Mm -hmm. 
every now and then I try to sit down and count and I'll do it with some of some other war gamers and they will always say, no, no, you forgot this and you forgot that. Really <laughs> there's a, lot, a whole lot number of another number uh, there's a number of other war games that are designed for the government uh, for the intelligence community that oh, really? don't count since they were all classified. Oh really? Can you talk yeah. about them now or do you have would you have to kill us? No, they're still classified. Oh wow. No, That's and I wouldn't have to kill I hate people when they say that because yeah. you know, I was I was part of the intelligence community and no, the only person who gets in trouble is not the recipient of the information. It's the person who committed the security violation by like babbling. Right. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. So that uh, that's usually said by people who who are not who are intelligence community wannabes or something. Yeah. yeah. Or but, or people like Jeff who just like bad jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> do you, so? How did they contact you, or did you seek that out? Is it? Uh, well, it was sort of a mutual thing. Uh, I had been involved in... Uh, there were people, obviously, in the government who play war games, and uh, there's some that are very familiar with both everything that goes within the government, the gaming cycle there, and within the recreation... and what we might call our field, more common recreational entertainment field, the war games. And they were constantly crossing out. The person who's done a tremendous job on that is uh, Matt Caffrey. I think he's a general now for the Air Force. He was head of war gaming at Air, Air University, but he's uh, very, very knowledgeable about a commercial war game field, and uh, he always was trying to bridge the two. But I had uh, basically at one point there was an issue. I had been doing some consulting work for one of the Beltway Bandits back when I lived in Virginia for the intelligence community, and uh, so I already had the clearances to a point and was sufficient, but then they they decided they needed a, a war game on, on a certain subject because there was a big debate between State Department and the Defense Department on, you know, should we do this, that, or what happens if we give these guys this weapon with the other, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was decided they wanted a war game, and one of the persons was familiar with my work. And he says, well, I know a guy who lives right here in Virginia already has the clearances. Why don't we uh, give him a con? see what we can do for with him as a contractor. Yeah, and were the, did they give you then uh, requirements for what they wanted, and and did those influence you in in coming up I mean, with uh, designs to make them realistic? Well, the thing is, first of all, yeah, they show me what they were looking for. The main thing is they are looking for often a specific answer. I called it, and I got very much involved in it, the analytical war game. It's a war game that says if if X does this, what is the what is the decision matrix after that? Uh, what are the probable outcomes? You know, the whole question of, okay, well, that, and and if there is a reciprocal escalation on the other side, what was the probable outcomes of that? Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like, and you show them, you know, you you start working you know, with it. So it's okay. You, give them, you create a, a war game world where they can plug in things to find out what is the effect of. Uh, should we, this type of resource, you know, and also says, okay, we'd like to help decide, but we don't want to do X, Y, and Z. And eventually I got very much involved in our intelligence community and gaming out various uh, weapon options to the Mujahideen. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, really? So, yeah. So, so the games that you designed for them and were by the way, most... the, uh, the movie Charlie Wilson's War is very well done. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's a great movie. <laughs> Were the games you designed for them more strategic level? More tactical. Really? 
you know, because mm-hmm. people up by then I had already developed a reputation as the tactical guru from squad leader and some other things. Yeah. Uh, it was almost like, or, ta- or tactical slash operational. Yeah. There was plenty of folks doing the uh, strategic. And the army, the military had a lot of its own war games, which unfortunately often were you, the results of those were either training, which is one thing, or they were, or they were trying to design to prove or justify the purchase of X weapon system. Mm-hmm. Now that's fine, and that's all. And training is; those are both some perhaps uh, valid uses. But an analytical game, war game, which they're doing for the, for them, was actually says, okay, what's actually just going to happen without any real decisions coming in on it? You know, let other people make the decisions. I'll just you, I'll just game it out. And you can run it as many times as you want. And a lot of times it was. They wanted a computer game. They wanted this, that. So it's amazing. You'd go into the library of existing government war games, and there's maybe a hundred different systems, and you could pick a system you want, call up whoever has it, and say, hey, uh, DIA or CIA would like to use this for some stuff. Can uh, you know, can we get the software from you? And then, since it's government, already owned, government owned, yeah, fine, not a problem. But it was sort of fascinating just to go when they give you the requirements and they say, if possible, we don't want this created from scratch, can you go kick around the government war game libraries and find something that would work, that you could modify to make it work. Yeah. That does sound interesting. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, it, you know, it was, uh, and heck, that kept gainfully employed for 20 years. Yeah, that's and what I was going to ask next, how long. Yeah, after that, during that time period, with the exception of Johnny Reb, I still was pretty much not that active. I, for obvious reasons, I didn't want to touch anything, even inkling of modern war. Right. Because after a while, you, your brain becomes a jumble, and you don't know what you've learned from unclassified sources and what you've learned from classified. Ah, uh, yeah. And you, so you just say, hey, you know. I'm not smart enough to sort it out anymore, so uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know the information, but I can't sort out where I got it. But as, right. as long as I stayed with the Civil War, I was safe. Yes, yes. There's, yeah, very, there's, the, there's a few things that are still classified on the Civil War. Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> all, 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 all involving the Lincoln assassination. Oh, okay, wow. <laughs> well, when, and, when did and, you, uh, if we could talk to you, you know, because our main focus is uh, of our podcast is about squad leader, when... Did you get the first ideas that you would design a game like? Well, after a while, because I, as I said, go back to earlier, I just said I was totally dissatisfied with what, a, what was available in terms of a tactical war game. You know, it didn't show the low, lower echelons and also had silly effects like in uh, Panzer Bush and some of the, and uh, where you ran, a guy can run from cover to cover and not be fired in between. And even there was a lot of, mini- was, in many respects, I started designing this as a miniature game first because uh, I wanted to play with micro armor. And, you know, but, but I figured it's, a, it's all sort of the same thing. And they, uh, the interesting thing about it was that I also ran into the same situation that you had made, pointed out. There was a number of war games that had this ridiculousness that you, a person could run right up to a person point blank and not receive any defensive fire. Yeah. So I sort of worked it out. Now we used to play monsters micro armor and I use little war game counters uh, for the uh, infantry that also was uh, sort of make it make it work I sort of 
you start with a standard of says, okay, what is the base unit that we're going to work with? And then, every, it, then everything is relative to that. What is the, you know, the lowest common denominator? And if you notice in squad leader, the, uh, I think the basic unit is a 4-4, four, four, something like that. Uh, I'm sorry, what do you mean by that? The... Uh, a combat factor of 4, four morale 4, something like that. 4-4-7, four, four, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, it does seem like the base, yeah. Yeah, and the reason I started with that, particularly the 447, was I had tons of Verdun counters left over that were already labeled as 44s. <laughs> so I figured, well, I can play the, use these for playtesting, just throw in a morale number of 7 or whatever. Yeah. But it, it doesn't matter if this is, because all the numbers are relative, so pick, pick a number as a base. You know, for your common GI, neither elite, neither green, neither neither here, nor coward, you know, your right. general run of the mill. So... We started playing with it like that, and it was coming together rather nicely. Then I talked to Eric Dodd about a tactical mini uh, game I had. So I was playing with miniatures. He found out it was miniatures. And remember, Eric Dodd was the late Eric Dodd now, was the president of Avalon. He says, wait, well, we just do board games. I says, all right, not a problem. One inch is one hex. Yeah. And it translated perfectly because basically it wasn't based on another game. It was based on what I, my perception of reality. And for a long time, I'd go to war game conventions and run squad leader in miniature. Yeah, which I have done also, actually. It works very well. It does, yeah. Whether it's squad leader or ASL, it all works very well. Uh, I was at a convention out west, and a guy had actually built the section of Stalingrad that was on the, uh, that I had from my little game board, and, you know, that actually he was doing in miniature the infamous The Guards Counterattack. Yeah. Which is probably the most played war game scenario of all time. Yeah, it probably is, I suppose. Yeah, the first scenario the, the first scenario was squad leader. Right. And that worked out and I, a lot of guys have taken it really far and you know, and in many ways ASL is you know, it's a squad leader with a hell of a lot of chrome. Mhm. And some guys like a lot of chrome, some don't. Fine. Yeah. It's proved that the system will function if whether you layer on as much as you want. You know, when you get down to loose leaf book number three or something, you know, you've layered on quite a bit, but it still works. Yeah. Uh, my personal preference, I think, in I think, I think ASL has gone too far with too much detail and too much because it slows down the game too much. And when you look at the fact that they reissued. Uh, ASL starter kits. Yeah, I, I thought that was a ripoff. Which have pared it back down. Yeah, uh, it, did, it did, but I also think that I was sort of had a bit of a, you know, I think a lot of gamers told me they had a problem with uh, the, the constantly says, all your old counters are no good anymore. You've got to buy all these new ones. Yeah, I, so I sort of like whatever possible, uh, try to keep backward compatibility. Right. It, it's become a legend. It's become a lifestyle. The problem, I thought, and once again, it's the old question of detail versus playability. It's not necessarily realism. Well, realism can has many different flavors. One of my design objectives of Squad Leader was once you learn the game, the basic game, you could play it in real time, two minutes. People have done that. I'd like to try that sometime. You know, because it's supposed to present the actual quick, sh quick snap decisions of yes. combat. right. You know, go back, go back through uh, Band of Brothers and time some of the combat sequences. Yeah. You will see everything. 
prep fire, defensive fire, advancing fire, close combat. He comes up to the uh, building and throws in a hand grenade. And he says, hey, this is all happening in a two-minute cycle. Hmm. And you have to make the decision. And that was the whole point of it. You could do it in two minutes. You had to make quick decisions. You couldn't ponder and says, okay, let me look up a rule on this. Is this in volume three or volume four? <laughs> uh, no. You know, somebody says, go for it. You know, but when you began to layer on all the extra detail and chrome of ASL, where people are, you know, I've, I've watched people play ASL, spend most of the time going through the rules. Yeah. Uh, which is very complete, you know, and there's obviously when you're in multiple volumes, they've got to be complete. But when it takes, because of all that rule checking back and forth, when you have, uh, when you now have a two-minute turn, assuming you're trying to simulate two minutes of combat and it takes a half hour to resolve. Yeah. You've, got, you've gotten a lot of detail, but, it, but I think you lost the realism. Realism is in the stress and snap decision of small unit combat. Were you aware of that when you were designing Squad Leader? Were you were you paring back things? Was detail creeping into your design? Yeah, it was the constant thing. You'd want to put more detail in at the same time. You could still have the fast and furiousness of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my personal opinion, and it's a balance, and it, you know, it's a matter of fact, a personal taste. Many things. Uh, I think the best balance was attained in Cross of Iron. Now, did you work on the next two modules? I worked on Cross of Iron and Crescendo of Doom, and it did some work on GI Anvil of Victory, but that was mostly Don Greenwood. Okay, right. Okay, I remember his name, yeah. Because I, I actually just got started in when they did the Advanced. Um, but yeah, well. I know exactly what you're saying about the speed thing, and it, it is a lot. You can still capture that. With the uh, new, with the advanced, but if you stick with infantry, I think that really helps. Or if you're playing someone who really knows the rules really well, which is not me, and I've been playing a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I can rely on them. Okay, what happens here when you overrun me? Okay, you got this option, this option, this option. Uh, all right, I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll just do that, you know. Uh, so, but you're right. I, I really like a game that when you put a little more pressure on it and try and move those turns along. Yeah, and the thing is, and. The thing is, the whole question of options. How much options do you really have? Uh, for, you know, some people, the concept of, should you be able to, the span of control. And, you know, if you're the war gamer and squad leader and you're running the normal assortment of counters, you probably have maybe a company. You know, maybe if you have a, you know, four squads in a platoon, maybe three platoons. They've got 12 to 16 com- uh, squads out there, maybe more, maybe less. You've uh, got a couple of tanks in support or something like this. Now, so you're the war giver, so you're functioning as the company commander. That's your cockpit. Uh, you suddenly t- uh, say, get those tanks over there, and you send the tanks over there to hope the armor does its thing knock out this little uh, roadblock or something like this with the infantry support. But you just give them the order for them to do how they actually necessarily do it and what options are really being chosen by the people in the tank, the infantry support, the defenders and stuff like this. You can't control. You just hope they do their job and they get lucky. Mm, right. 
so somebody's stopping, okay, the tank's going to overrun this, and my options are his options. This. I sort of thought, well, the options are really, if you go back to the concept of you are the company commander, your option is you order it into battle, tell it where to go, and hope for the best. So that's why you could, I think a lot of that stuff is you get further away from the wargamer as a role-playing person, he's the company commander, the more you should probably abstract the various events rather than having all the specific little options played out. But a lot of gamers, some of you like to be able to say, no, I want to be able to do control the options of everything. Yeah, I want to actually be the infantry guy throwing the DC and the tank commander. and. Yeah. You know, once again, as I say a lot, watch, you know, Saving Pirate Ryan or any of Band or Brothers, and the first thing, the, the combat is very well done, and yet the people are sort of in control, but they're really not. You yeah. watch, yeah, it's like the things are going on. The guy who's supposedly commanding this is just watching, just hoping, trying to react and trying to make decisions. But his actual span of command, once you're engaged, is very limited. Yeah, you see an, you see an enemy squad coming around the corner of a building. You don't, you don't weigh, you know, should I fire at him or should I wait until he <laughs> you no, you're know, cut crosses loose. the street? For, you're just going to cut loose. Yeah, that's right. Or you're just going to say... Or if you're there by yourself with your uh, Colt 45, and here comes a German squad with an MG38, you just, you just hope somebody else is around to take them out. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you, uh, as you were designing it, you know, what was your consideration regarding fog of war? That's always been a sort of a topic around war gaming that's been really interesting. Yeah, yeah and around squad leaders. Yeah, and around squad leaders specifically. Well, yeah, I think you always try to blend in as much as you possibly can. Fog of war to a point. You want to have as uh, much you possibly can without with still making it playable. You could get ridiculous to the point that no, there's no counters on the board and you're not even everybody's plotting and charting and stuff like that. Well, come on, guys. It's still supposedly a game. But on the other hand, too much fog of war itself is unrealistic. There's a lot of games that sometimes overstress over it. Yeah, this, uh, this is the little blocks. Yes, the yeah, block games, you, right. Yeah, you can't see what's behind them and stuff like that. You know, you can't see when you just see a block representing troops. Yeah, Washington's Wars did that. Yeah. I remember. Uh, but, but they only but, did it when you were, like, far away. So. Yeah, but in reality, though, particularly, let's say, on the Eastern Front, where they, they've got one of the big block games on the Eastern Front, Everybody pretty much knew what their intelligence was very good. Everybody had pretty good orders of battle on the other guy. Yeah, and you had aerial reconnaissance, and you had radio communication. And everybody says, you know, even look at the the Russians' Operation Uranus, which uh, the big cutoff in Stalingrad. The Germans weren't surprised at the, the Russian attack. Uh, they saw aerial reconnaissance. They saw the stuff building up on their flanks. It wasn't lack of information. It was the misjudgment. Of maybe that yeah well they can do that but we probably will yeah they'll attack and we'll well yeah. deal with it. yeah right <laughs> it was a miss uh, miss not so much a lack of information but a lack of appreciation of the potential the poor fighting quality of the Hungarians Romanians and Italians and also an overestimation uh, of what they could do correct which is more uh, rather than just a lack lack of information big you know total surprise. And some of the classics are also cursed. It wasn't like both sides knew. Everybody knew what each side had, what each side was doing, and everybody and the Russians knew when the Germans were going to attack. It was a battle of perfect information. 
on both sides. Yeah. And so it was the mistake was not a lack of intelligence. It was this mistake of judgment. You know, do we really want to do this? You know, so many of the, so that's an example sometimes, you know, what what is the fog of war? I think fog of war is more relevant in some of the more, more period games where people, whole armies could hide behind a hill and come out of a fog and things like that. Yeah. Okay. And uh, also it becomes a little more fog of war as you get down to the smaller unit. Very rarely, you know, it's not like the company commander in the middle of a fight for a, a, a little town somewhere in Normandy has access to, at that instant, access to all the, the uh, aerial photography. He wouldn't. And even then it would be 48 hours old. So, so what? Yeah. He doesn't necessarily know exactly what it is you know, what amount of Germans are coming around at him at this moment. He's very much more if he's in a close action inside a town or, you know, woods or something, he's, he will very quickly find out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that, uh, so in that sense, you have the, the fog of war. I think you could work a lot of that into S, uh, squad leader and ASL. Yeah, weren't the concealment counters there in the original squad leader, right? Yeah, that's what they were there for. And there's other, you could... They could mean a lot of things. They could say it could be real, it could be dummy. Uh, you also could do some amounts of, okay, I have a whole platoon hidden behind X Hill or something like this. The, the hidden counter could all, usually we estimate it's real or it's dummy. It also could be, it's real, but it represents like six squads. Easy enough done with just a little uh, roster sheet. Right. Uh, but you don't want the fog of war element to become a, uh, a tedious game in itself. You know, bottom line, we do this for fun, and after a while, if it becomes too much work, why bother? Yeah, with all recording all the secret things and, and that kind of stuff. Can now, some people, that's their game. You know, that's what they really like that. You yeah. Know? Uh, so did, did you design the game so it was fun for you, or were you thinking of your audience? Then did you make you know certain concessions on your own? Primarily, I tried to, you know, if the group I was playing with thought the way I did, so it was fun for me, it was fun for them. Yeah. Beyond that group, one didn't know. That's what happens so many war games are dud, because a designer thinks they're a lot of fun, his little group thinks they're a lot of fun, but when they go out and throw it out into the, the great piranha pit of war gamers at large, <laughs> uh, not. Yeah. And in 1977, you published Squad Leader, and what was the reception like when it? It was when it, went out? it was outstanding. Oh, er, you know, uh, I remember when Avalon Hill first, when they first released, was at a war game convention in some little place in Long Island, I think, not Woodner College, but maybe I think it was somewhere else like that. And uh, they, they basically they sold out the first or second day, and they had to get more games schlepped up from Baltimore. That's and a good thing. And when it when it when it went to press, were you happy with the way it was? Were you satisfied when? Well, I, I was. I was. It was fine. You know, there's mm -hmm. always going to be some compromises and stuff. Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, were you already starting to work on the next? <laughs> yeah, improvements. To some degree, what yeah. would be next? What I thought would should go. Uh, something they they want to do certain things for marketing reasons, like you know. And I said, okay, fine, whatever. But I don't know what. What person came up with the idea that the the box should be purple? <laughs> you know, which is the most 
unlikely color for a war game box. Well, second most unlikely. Yeah, the first one would be pink. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not very military. Well, unless you're like uh, ancient, I don't know, Prussian or something. Or... Yeah, okay. Yeah, Caesar's color. Fine. Caesar was, it, the color of the Emperor of Rome was purple. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but... uh, Did... And it was, you know, that was just, but now that's probably one of the most sought-after antique war games of all time in the first edition Purple Squad Leader. Yeah. yeah. Did you, um, can I talk business a little bit? Did, do you sell these games in bulk? I mean, you know what I mean? Is it like um, you're contracted or you, you design it and then you just sell it all at once? Or do you keep a royalty system? Or has that changed throughout history? Or Well, back then I was doing everything on a royalty basis. Per box sold? or um, It would be so many per game sold. And it could be a per, so much per game unit, uh, or it could be a percent of the amount you get. Maybe if it's a fixed percentage, maybe you get a different amount. If it's a wholesale sale or a retail sale, or you just come up with a, a flat figure. There's a lot of different ways of doing it, you know, and a lot of different companies want different ways. Right. More and more, uh, not even more and more, a lot of times, depending on when I look at the level of ever somebody wants something, and maybe usually the, just a scenario for their existing game. I've done a, a scenario for the Flights of Fantasy's uh, Tide of Iron. It was their idea, and it was a good idea there to get all the famous war game designers to design one scenario for the Tide of Iron game. Yeah. So, so that was, there was no real royalty in that since they all go, all the scenarios go into one uh, scenario book. So that was a, that was a flat fee. Okay. And now you don't get it. Well, you don't get anything obviously from the advanced system. No, I currently. don't. And of course, that was no- a, that was a mistake on my part not to really go into, not to press fully for that with you know with a full legal power that could be available to me. But I didn't. Uh, so I didn't get anything on ASL. Okay. The um, and of course, no one makes a living at this. Or have you managed to kind of do that? Or? No, no one has made it. They made a living by using it as a uh, lever into something else. Certainly, I made a very good living with the intelligence community for 20 years. Right. Which, my introduction to that, that was primarily is for doing uh, some war games, and then one thing led to another, and then pretty much you're just sort of sucked into the whole thing, and, you know. But, but it then works. But that's a very good government pays very well. Yeah. So... But now designing war games and stuff, uh, yeah, I can puddle with it because it makes it makes pocket money, and I never will because my, you know, I've got a pretty good government pension, so I don't have to rely on it for a living. You consider uh, yourself most people who make a living out of war gaming are not doing it in the commercial sector. They eventually uh, um, become to the attention of the uh, profet- uh, after the governmental sector, and then then you can make, make some very good, good money. Provided you have the right contact, the timing, the timing is everything. Uh, you just come out, Anthony Wood, and says, I'd like to sell a war game to the, the DIA or something like that. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. They already got their contractors, so hmm. and you sort of hook up with some bidding for something. That, that's a whole nother, That's a whole other game in itself. So after a squad leader, you know, the first edition, then they came, that went through four editions, I believe. Is that right? That's possible. Yeah. And were you involved in, in those second, third, and fourth edition modifications? Uh, squad leader, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I was, well, I was involved in cash. I cashed my loyalty checks, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best part. You know, that is, but after a while, they're just sort of, you know, cleaning up the rules and plugging and chugging and at least getting away from the purple box. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which they did on second edition, I think. Oh, oh yeah, they most yeah. certainly did. And by doing it, they created the uh, all-time, you know, the number one collector's first edition. I mean, I know, guys who, I know guys who just constantly go through the Compson world list and everything, and they just constantly hunting for the, uh, hoping that someone, some, uh, you know, a purple squad leader, you know, unpunched will surface. Lots of luck, but if you do, it's going to be serious money. Yeah. You don't have a stack of those stashed in your basement. No, you? everybody has asked me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the world wants to know. Yeah, when, that would be, no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And it also said that I probably you... should have. Yeah, if well, only yeah, looking, known. looking back, yeah. You know, yeah. I should have treated it like a wine, take a, a whole case of the Purple Squad leaders and, you know, <laughs> stash it away for 20 years. Well, who would have thought? I mean, it, it seems to us yeah, it was a phenomenon. It was unpredicted, and that yes. was the... No one expected it to be what it was. The normal run of a game would be, you know... It would be popular for a couple of years and then sort of die out, and then another game would be in vogue. Uh, yeah. There was the old saying that eighty percent of all war game sales happened in the first two years. That was the rule of thumb in the, com- in the commercial war gaming at the time. Because mm-hmm. everybody went on to the newest and greatest, whatever it was. Uh, to have to, to have planned for squad leader being for what it was was would have been impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, the two things you never can really predict is total disaster and total success. Yeah. The odds are too much against either one. Yeah. 99% of the time, you get something in the middle. Uh, and Squad Leader was such a successful design, and the basic mechanisms of how it works, whether it's Squad Leader, ASL, Johnny River, any one of its numerous imi- imitations, yeah, it, it, it had an elegant simplicity about it that gave it legs that had not been seen probably before or since. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to us that there's... You know, something of a renaissance, I guess, in this kind of board gaming, and we suspect it's because people played these when they were younger, high school, college. Yeah, and they're sort of getting back into it. And they're getting back into it. The kids are gone to college themselves, and people have time. And, and, and he goes, starts poking around in his basement or something, and he says, oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Mm-hmm. He dusts it off. Yeah, that was cool, man. I had a lot of good times with that. Yeah, and of course, the Internet makes it so easy then to find people to play. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, I found... Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Before the Internet, you just sort of, run, you know, it was by pure chance. Yeah. Or made your friends play. That's your friends, I... yeah. You, you converted a few friends. You pl- played the role of the apostle. Right. And, uh, or you eventually maybe you started a little wargaming club at your high school or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or college or whatever. Now, you had also owned a game store, is that right? Yeah, I owned a, it was a hobby shop it was in Lafayette, Indiana. It was, you know, a general full-line hobby shop, mostly model railroad military hobbies, of which wargaming was one part of it. Okay. But, I, but it wasn't primarily a game store. Games, I did okay with the games, but the bread and butter was in the more established hobbies, such as model railroading and RC models and things like that. The main reason was model railroading was an established adult hobby, 
and now adults had a lot more money than the high school kids who were primarily the the core of your wargaming group at the time. Right, right. yeah. Now, any smart businessman focuses business on the hobbies of the rich. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, the adult, uh, model railroading had, they had a lot of money. They could drop a couple hundred bucks on a single engine and stuff like that. Yeah, I want to cater to that. I want to sell stuff to these guys. But the wargaming was fun. I had, I enjoyed it and stuff, but... You know, as I, but it was not, uh, it was primarily the hobby of the people of in high school and college who didn't have that much disposable income. A few did, but not that many. Yeah, and I think... The- and it was, and I, that's why I says, okay, that's when I was running the hobby shop, and then I even, that's when I spun off my game company, the Conflict Game Company. And how long did that last? No, oh, it lasted for about a couple, of two, three years, and I sold the company to a game designer's workshop. Oh, okay, right, right. Yeah, and... They, they ran with it for a while, and it's sort of a sobering thought that very, very few war game companies survive, maybe five to ten, you know, that, yeah. and some not even that long. You know, do you have any insight into the failure of Avalon Hill, or were you not it, that? Eric Dott's view, it never was a failure. His whole concept was, build, you know, Eric Dott was a businessman. Is he? Was he the owner of Avalon Hill? Yeah, he owned Avalon Hill. Uh Basically, Eric Dot owned a printing company. Oh. I forget, Charles Roberts sort of started Avalon Hill, and the company went bankrupt mainly because they owed Eric Dot's printing company so much money. So Eric Dot just like the books, took over Avalon Hill, smart enough to see, hey, this little company has some legs, let it run for a while. But the whole point was he would, he would keep it going to the point he would be able to cash in and sell it off to somebody else. And he sold it off uh, eventually to Hasbro. Right. Mm-hmm. So you mean the printer guy at Monarch? Is that Monarch Printing or something? Monarch Press, you know. That was owned by Eric Dot. So that gave him the angle to leverage to take over Avalon Hill and then run with that. Eric Dot was a supreme opportunist and businessman. The company was a, his strategy, you know, whether it's, he sold it off for a good, a good chunk of change. So from his viewpoint, it wasn't a failure at all. It did yeah. exactly what we intended it to do. It was a commodity that he picked up cheap because they were broke and they owed him money, and eventually, given and he made money all of it, made a good cash flow all through the years. Then he sold it off for some serious bucks to Hasbro. And what? How did they not manage their funds well enough? Well, printing too many games at once, or do you? Do you... That I mean, well, I think it was. Well, it was sort of hard to say they're only bringing out one new product a year. And so your whole life or life or death is based on what's going to happen to that one new product, you know. Yeah. You better have a winner every year. Yeah, so it's And very- had Squadron not come along, they probably would have died a lot earlier. Because they had a number of really bad games. You know, one that was sort of mediocre was uh, Luzaki's uh, Luftwaffe. And, yeah, okay, it, it sort of played out you know, in a very simplistic way, a big error campaign over Germany, but eventually Germany's pounded the oblivion, all the targets are bombed. Uh, it didn't really, ha- you know, it was okay, but it didn't have the kind of excitement. Then there was the all-time, what I think the biggest dud of a war game, was designed by Tom Shaw, Kriegspiel. Kriegspiel? Kriegspiel. Hmm. 
that was yeah. their game for one year, and they, you know, maybe, you know, it was, it was very novel, new, different, but it was totally out of touch with what the war gamers wanted yeah. or were looking for. So you're bringing out one game a year, and if you bring out a total, you know, dog, whether it's a brilliant design or not, if the gamers don't like it, you're dead in the water. And SPI, on the other hand, was coming yeah, out. Yeah, they just crank them out like popcorn. Three a month or something like that yeah, for a while. And, and the whole point was, yeah, some were good, some were bad. Yeah. Some were hideous, some were had little strict experience, but who cares? You got If you didn't like it, you got another one, another couple coming next month. Yeah, yeah, right. right it was that the time, that... you know, you throw, you do enough of them, you're going to get some, you're going to have a, a part, an even mix of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. But it's a, you know, but they were cheap enough and popcorn enough that you, if you happen to get one of the ugly ones, so what? Maybe the next one's going to be great. Is, uh, have you seen the? Um, we recently received an email with a link to a, uh, some video on YouTube of an SPI infomercial, what they call an infomercial from 1977 or so, or 1980. It's about a five-minute-long commercial for SPI games. Have you seen that? No. I'll, I'll email it to you. It's pretty. It's it's pretty fun to watch. <laughs> it'll it'll take you back. Yeah, it'll take you back. It'll take you back. Yeah, I'm sure it would. So, do you get? Do you play? What are you playing these days? Are you still playing? You have a group oh, of guys. Yeah, you... occasionally I'll be uh, get together with uh, when I go to the conventions. I'll get talked to do a Johnny Reb game or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I went to Comsim World, and you know, I'll play. You know, occasionally play something. But usually people just want to sit there and talk about games, or I'll, you know, talk about some of my uh, some of my ongoing design work and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I really don't play that much anymore because it's simply I'm more interested in who I'm playing with. Mm-hmm. My God, there's some people out there that take this stuff way too serious. <laughs> <laughs> and you made the game, and they and you're saying that. Yeah, that's so no, true. No, but there is a. I went to a fun little convention. Uh, I'd recommend it to you. It happens every two years. It's down in Indianapolis. It's called Johnny Con. Oh. It was based, uh, the guy who runs it was one of the original playtesters of Squire Vita, one of the original playtesters of Johnny Reb, and he, he became a, a big Johnny Reb fan, so he founded Johnny Con. It was basically based on Johnny Reb and all derivatives thereof, and since Squire Vita was the prequel, that really, uh, you know, it's, a, it's always played there in a ver- with endless variations. It's in Indianapolis every, it's going to be in this, this year in June. And if you're in Chicago, I can promise you it'll be a great, a good time. There's only about 50 guys there, but you're going to be with all the people who are there at the begin, who are there at the creation. Mm. Might be a worthwhile uh, road if trip. If you're down to, if you, uh, if you're in Chicago, it's yeah. a two-hour drive. Yeah. Well, we might do that. It'd be fun. You know, to I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there, and a lot of the other guys. There's always some beautiful squad leader miniature games. Uh, one fellow did a beautiful version, I think, of, I forget the actual scenario, but everybody knows a Hill 681 or something like that. Yeah, oh, right, Hill yes. One. You know, which, uh, and I had sort of forgotten, forgotten about this, I had forgotten sort of how to play squad leader even. Uh, but it, how this guy had ver- done a brilliant with miniatures, he did all the terrain in miniature, you know. So I, it was, so we're, I was playing this scenario as the German, it's very frustrating for the German, you guess when you're constantly seeing that, you're getting ahead, you know, 
more Russians come in or something yep, like here that. Here comes some more, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so finally they got these bastards under control. Oh, man, you know, <laughs> which was really what the Germans felt like in the post-Kursk era. Yeah, yes, no doubt. And uh, at one point, I was just, you know, I was getting so frustrated and... Uh, in, in some ways, I had a real uh, good long, uh, I had a significant string of bad luck, and I finally says, oh, this is really unbalanced. What moron designed this scenario? <laughs> and then, then, the point, then there was point, right, well, you did. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was so engrossing and so frustrating that I had even forgot I was the creator of this, uh, this monster. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but everybody had a great laugh about that. Yeah. And, yeah, well, uh, maybe we will get to Johnny Com this year. That's a that and, sounds and, very and interesting. Have a we... web, yeah, it is, and yeah, you'll get the the, the guy will probably once again bring Hill six eighty one. It you it's such a it is such a cleverly balanced there. The German keeps thinking, well, I almost won this time. Maybe the next time, if I do just that little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, that that, well, that was makes for a good war game. It'd be worth the drive. It'd be worth the drive just to meet you because, you know, like it or not, you're you're a legend. Well, well thank you very much. How's that uh, feel? I mean, it, it's really been uh, a real honor to talk to you. Well, well thank you very Definitely, much. Definitely, yeah. yes. But, I mean, uh, you're going to, the people who will be there were the ones who were some of the first play testers of Johnny, of Johnny Red, and the first play testers of the squad leader. The guys who played it in miniature crawling around on my basement floor. Yeah. You know, this is the real grognards. Yeah. And, and the is. thing is, you begin to see all the games. Johnny Reb is basically a derivative of Squad Leader. And you'll see all the different variations. The thing is, you can put it on any game you want, provided it's a based in some way loosely cosmically with uh, from Johnny Reb's Squad Leader. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a kick. It is. It absolutely mm-hmm. is a you know, because it's so grossly informal, it is It is a kick. Yeah. Now, that was Hill 621, you think, that scenario we were just talking about? I forget the number, but everybody suddenly knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think it was 621. It's uh, listed on the Roar record where they record who wins, and it actually comes up 75 victories for the German and 74 for the Russian. That's pretty well balanced. According yeah. to this, you can't. Yeah, you don't get more balance than that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Anyway, any anything else you'd like to say? Well, no. I think we've pretty much covered it. You know, from the uh, SL and the ASL viewpoint. Well, we appreciate you very much taking the time to talk with well, us. I know it's, uh, it's been my pleasure. It's always fun to uh, reminisce about a lot of the quirks of how these things really come into being. Yeah. Well, and we had interviewed the new full-time employee at MMP um, last week. And we had you this week, and I told Jeff it's all downhill from here. We've already, yeah, we've, <laughs> we sh- maybe we should stop recording, uh, Dave, and just fold up the tents. Yep, just, yeah. you know, after this, there's no one more important <laughs> well, than these al- two guys. <laughs> you've already been, to the, been to the, you've already climbed the two mountains you wanted to do. That's yep. right, that's right. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks again very much, okay, John. Okay, you we, guys have a good evening. All right, yeah, thanks, John. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.